Greetings, ladies and gentlemen. It's Dress Rehearsal on KBFG Seattle, and I'm Lorenzo Marasso. Rehearsal is a new classical music program here on 107.3 KBFG Seattle. And here is your host, Lorenzo Marasso. I am a concert pianist, an orchestra conductor, and a music lover. You're probably used to listening not to classical music on this station, and I hope that this program and the music that is presented with it will engage you and tickle your interest. The idea is to enlighten the listeners with new sounds that do not necessarily have a drum or a constant beat to follow, but they are more sounding like a piano or a violin or a flute or all of those instruments together or a big orchestra. So if you bear with me every week, I will present you with a lot of interesting music that falls under the spectrum of what is commonly known as classical music. Not only, but occasionally on the show we will have guests like performers or composers that will have a chance to present their own work and recordings. So if you're either a performer or a composer and you would like to appear on the show, feel free to email me at Lorenzo, which is spelled L-O-R-E-N-Z-O, at K-B-F-G dot O-R-G. And I will get back to you as soon as possible and hopefully give you a chance to appear on the show. My guest for today is Classical King FM radio host, Sean McLean. And Sean, thank you for being with us. It's a great pleasure that you dedicate some of your time, precious time, for my, let's say, I, I don't think it's a starting career or as a radio host too, but I'm <laughs> quite enjoying doing this this podcast. And, uh, it's, a, and, it's a strange context. For me, there's no bottle of wine between us, Lorenzo. <laughs> wine is going yeah. to be in there, but of course music, because mm. we are both musicians, and this is a dedicated podcast uh, of you know performers and can we composers. do can we do wine and music in this podcast we can do wine okay. and music exactly i think yes. i'm i'm li- i'm liable to go there with you so w- when when did this passion for radio um i i mean between the two of us we talked about it but yeah. the listener might be interested how do you became a, a radio host for a classical music station i sort of in order to tell that i i have to do i have to jump in in medias res as they say in latin in the middle of the story you know um because it won't make sense otherwise. So, I made you start virtus. No, that's, that's, something, <laughs> that's something else. <laughs> yeah, um, in the midst of things, you know, uh, I found myself in in Boston uh, in the year 2000, working for WGBH Radio. I can go back and explain how that happened, but 
I wasn't expecting to be a host. I had been hired to organize their collection of very, very fine local recordings from Boston-based music groups. I walked in and I saw their shelves of incredible performances all on digital audio tape, DAT. And I asked, so how do you find what you're looking for? And they said, yeah, um, <laughs> that's a bit of a problem. Because I said, you know, if you need to find a Beethoven trio, but your DAT recording has a Beethoven trio and a Ravel quartet and something else, how do you organize it? And they said, we haven't figured out a system. I said, well, do you have Max here? And they said, yeah. Do you have FileMaker? Yes, we actually have that program installed. Well, I can write you a database so you can start organizing it and you can find and search instead of spending hours scouring with your physical eyes these rows and rows and rows. And so I was hired for my database geekery, which is funny to me. Um, I had started to learn FileMaker when Max came out in the 80s. And I just learned it because I like things to look pretty with my data. And at the time, all that existed was a Lotus 123, this hideous looking sort of gulag fonted monospaced hideous. It was just, it was depressing to look at. FileMaker allowed you to create and organize your information in a way that was graphically what you wanted it to be, your own fonts, your own layout, and all that. And I thought, thank God for that. Uh, so I started organizing things, you know, just an address book or something like that. And I, I told my best friend at the time, it's too bad that all this geekery that I'm spending, this time making a pretty address book or a pretty photo collection, it's never going to serve anybody except myself. And he said, give it 10 years. And he was right on the money. It was 10 years later that GBH hired me. So I find myself at this radio station as a database guy. And they clearly figured out, you know, when we, we became friends there, the hosts, um, that, you know, I was a composer and that I, I had training as a, I was a pianist first and then a composer. And I'd had some pretty good performances, BBC Symphony, won some international awards. And so that opened up a conversation about talking about music. And I was lucky, lucky enough to be trained by uh, Richard Nisley, who was their head um, classical music host at the time. And he sort of, you know, took me under his wing and put a microphone in front of me and said, you know, try, talk about music. I learned a lot from him because he kept saying to me, <laughs> well, that's a very good imitation of Mr. Radio Man, but where's Sean McLean? And I kept saying, well, people don't want to hear Sean McClain. They want to hear a professional talking about the music. Who cares about Sean McClain? And he said, that's actually where you're wrong. And it's very hard to do this. They actually want to hear your opinions. I said, no. Are you, <laughs> what? I don't turn on the radio so I can hear some guy's opinion. He quickly proved me wrong by testing me on my knowledge of local announcers. And I thought, oh, I think I actually do enjoy hearing their opinions, their personal takes. So it was very hard to overcome that shyness about sharing my own take on things. And he wouldn't give up. He wouldn't let up. He kept saying, yeah, that was great. You know, so it's pro, but yawn, I'm bored. Where's Sean? You know, <laughs> okay, all right, I'll give, you, I'll give you my take. And then suddenly it was sort of taking off. Well, he was ill one week and I, I was the only person who was around to step in for him. And I went on the mic live. Nothing felt scary about it. it felt, I felt very much at home. And afterwards, I think the librarian at GBH said to me, so you've been doing this for a while, right? And I said, no, that was my first time. And she asked me the question, how, 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 are you not, how have you not been doing this? I mean, didn't, don't you love sharing music with people? And bam, it just came to me. I remembered that I actually put this 
out to the universe when I was 13 years old. It, the story just came right back to me. And this is why I started in Medias Res. That when I was 13, my friend Antonio and I, he was a violinist, very fine one, uh, were sitting at his turntable in his house, and he pulled out a record of Marta Argerich with Berlin Philharmonic and Claudio Abado conducting. It's Prokofiev Third Piano Concerto. And I couldn't breathe. I just <laughs> kept thinking, how can you write? Where did he, how did he hear that in his head? How on earth did he hear that in his head? And who is this pianist? She's a god, you know? And, and I was so knocked out by the record, I remember saying to Antonio, you know, I could just make a life of sharing something this amazing with the world, just to, just to put records on and just share it so that more people could know that this exists out there. Bam, right there, that was it, the call to the universe. And I had forgotten that I'd said that. So to answer your question, it started with a little pledge or desire at age 13. Um, it went through, well, I'd, I've been talking a long time without a question. Maybe you want it. No, 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 no. No, okay. No, no. I mean, uh, what, what I could add um, to this is that um, because I just started to do podcasts, so mm. it's new for me as well. But it feels very musical what we're doing here mm. in radio. It it is. I don't think it's very different from uh, what a composer does. You just do it with different instruments, and here mm. we do it with voice. Mm. And you know, we we you know we ask questions, and then and the composing of the podcast. This is what I noticed in the past few weeks that I've been doing this. I'm very new to this, but <laughs> it's it feels like you know having a little score that you create, and yes. it's it's a little piece of you know. Spoken music, if, if it, that. So yes, it is very much like composing, and so that's where, of course, the composing background definitely comes in for me. I was a pianist. Um, I went to a international piano competition when I was eighteen, and uh, I was not the best musician there, and I knew it instantly. The best musician was the cellist, and he should have won, and everyone knew that. But a rather mediocre violinist won instead, and there was scandal. And I remember feeling extremely disheartened by this because I thought, this cellist should take the first prize. Everyone knows it. And this violinist who is completely forgettable won it instead. Something's going on there. And I buttonholed one of the judges, um, who was a, a critic for my San Francisco paper, and said, how much did they pay you? How much did the parents pay you? I was like, you know, I was 18 years old, full of... <laughs> full <Yeah>. of <laughs> energy. <laughs> yeah. And he said, he said listen, kid, you know, you got to do this competition surf circuit a while, you know, you can't just level. And I said, so how much do they pay? I like, wouldn't give up. And he grabbed me by the shirt and dragged me around a corner. And he said, if you want a career, you're going to have to get over this attitude. And I said, hmm, that's what I thought. How much yeah. did they pay? He would not answer the question. Yeah. He would not defend the violinist. He would not make a case for why the violinist won. He was just like, sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. And I thought I don't, I don't want any part of this. That's I, do, I don't I don't believe in competitions, and uh, mm. you know I'm in good company. Bartok didn't believe in competitions, mm. Mm. and uh, he was Bartok. I'm not mm. Bartok, but, <laughs> <laughs> but no. The point is that you could you can have a musical life without being in that right. um, network of, of of like teachers and and the, you know the the club of. of teachers and 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 piano competition yeah. and all these things and yeah. still be a fine musician I and think. also I mean I saw some colleagues of mine who are pianists who did that whole competition circuit and they went from being 
I would say well-adjusted creatures, you know, who played sports and were dating and having a normal life. And in order to do that kind of circuit, you, you can't really have a life. And by, after four years or so, they generally had stutters. They were terribly awkward socially. And I just thought, yeah, I don't, I don't want to go that route. Yeah. I'm not willing to give up that much. Um, so, so I started writing what I wanted to. Uh, it started with making corrections to composers' music uh, and being yelled at by my teacher. You can't do that to Chopin, he said. And I said, well, actually, it's clearly the wrong note. He clearly meant this. And Chopin may be a god, but he's not an infallible god. And the voice leading doesn't point to that note. So it's clearly either an editor's mistake or a composing mistake. So I'm going to put this note there instead. And he said, how dare you? Well, years later, I would find recordings by the likes of uh, Dino Lipati, um, um, uh, Cortot, people like that, you know, who had made exactly the same corrections I had made to those pieces. And I thought, okay, I'm not alone here. And my instincts are not irrational, you know, they can be trusted. So I started writing my own music because I thought, if I write my own music, nobody can yell at me for corrupting Chopin or, you know. By the way, I should say, I never change a note of Bach. Bach never needs a note changed. <laughs> never. A lot of other composers, but Bach is is unassailable. I'm just yeah. throwing that out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so that could be a, the you know the topic of another. It podcast could. <laughs> it could be. How could any you know, how could one Bach or... <laughs> how could one musician be so infallible? Anyway, so yeah. So I started writing my own music, and you know it quickly got attention. I won the National Association of American Composers Award for a song cycle I wrote, and um, I was invited to conduct my own choral piece at the. American Choral Directors Association, they had this great idea, which is invite the composers out and have them conduct their own pieces for all the conductors. Because as marketing, um, you know, the conductors show up, they hear a bunch of new works, and then they go home and they program whatever they were going to program anyway. But if you make those choral conductors who are all showing up in one city on one day, if you make them sight read a new piece and make them actually sing it and get it into their flesh and their bones, they're much more likely to program it and buy the score, right? And it worked. It was the first year they did that, and and my piece was the inaugural work in this new series. And it really was, um, it was a life-changing experience to be conducting a room full of a thousand conductors. Me, I'm not a conductor. I mean, I know the fundaments, but I'm not a conductor. And on the amen, the final chord of the piece, this lovely... Uh, B flat nine and second inversion chord and they're singing amen and I was so buried in the score because I was nervous and I look up and there are a thousand faces singing my amen at me all beaming you know and I just thought okay this is this is not likely to happen again very soon <laughs> right <laughs> but I, you know cheer, cheer the moment <laughs> oh it was a great it was a great moment and there was a part of me that thought I could just yeah just to write music and reach people that way
This is Dress Rehearsal on KBFG Seattle, and this is your host, Lorenzo Marasso. Today's guest is uh, Classical King FM radio host, uh, Sean McLean. And you have just listened to a composition by our guest, Sean McLean. The piece is titled Before Dawn. The only problem is that if you're going to call yourself a composer, you have to produce quantity. And I was not able to do that. Um, I gave myself about 10 years. I thought, okay, if I can write enough music and publish it enough and get enough performances and, and get the income you know, necessary to live as a composer, I'll do that. And if not, I'll look to something else. So it was right around the time when I realized I wasn't able to produce enough content. You know, Writing one symphony that's really good a year, that's just not gonna pay the bills. Yeah, yeah. So that's when a friend of mine uh, who was English said, hey, you wanna tour the BBC studios? And that was the first time I remember sitting down in front of a mic. And the sound of that Austrian mic, I was like, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> I, I should say something about um, what's called falling in love with the tone. My first program director at WGBH said to me when I sat in front of their mic to do a mic test, he said, yeah, don't, don't fall in love with the tone, <laughs> you know. It's very easy because you can get these, these wonderful low bass notes and you kind of just want to hang out in there and it makes you sound like, you know, no, it's exhausting to the listener after a while to just have that one tone all the time, right? So um, Austrian or German mic aside, you still have to speak <laughs> like yeah. a human being. That's another lesson. I yeah, think. yeah, 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 yeah. The gear. The gear, yeah. But, and learning, you know, the microphones don't hear the way human ears do, just like cameras don't see the way eyes do, right? So you have to learn, you learn how to translate. You, it's, a, it's a musical instrument, as you were saying. Yeah. A microphone is a musical instrument. And, and these days, these, musical, these new musical instruments, I mean, they're not very new, but <laughs> of course, they're becoming very important because everything is at a at distance, live music, it's, it's not really happening. So I, myself, I had to buy some gear, mm. you know, to, in order to stream from home. And, you know, now it's the podcast, so it's... This is it's the world a, we're living in now where you, it's not enough to be a performer. You now have to be a performer, yeah. YouTube producer, uh, recording engineer, uh, I mean, everybody's having to become everything, which means that nobody can have enough time to become really good at one thing. It, that's my contention. Yeah. So Sean and I used to, uh, before COVID, used to share this passion for tasting unusual wines. One of the purposes was to try to see how well we can guess them, right? Yes. I mean, the point, the point is actually something that I used to do a long time ago with other friends in Italy. Uh, you know, th these people were actually working in the wine industry and they used to meet and cover all the bring bottles and, and, and have those bottles completely covered. So and then pour the wine to the guests and then people would have to guess uh, which wine, which region, which year and all these things. And I, I learned a lot. I mean, I still cannot guess fully <laughs> where, one, where one wise. From. Sometimes you get lucky. Sometimes I get lucky. Yes. Yeah. yeah, I got you on a Turkish bottle recently. <laughs> yes, yes. So I, I, yes. So one of the, 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 the wines that we tasted recently was a, um, a um, what was it? Just a, a blend, I think. No, it was a Turkish uh, varietal that I had never heard of before, but I knew that it was from that part of the world. I, I can't tell you how. So it's when it, I saw this yeah. Turkish wine on the catalog, yeah. I thought, 
this is for Sean, and I bought it, <laughs> and then I wanted Sean over, and this is quite some time ago, but uh, and we, I opened the bottle, and Sean, after, you, may, you threw Armenia out. Yes, Armenia was my first reaction, and then I said <laughs> to you, well, it's somewhere in the sweep of Turkey through Armenia, and you were just like, Yes, and I know I don't know how he did it, but he was he was he was good. In and I, I have no answer other than it tasted like my conception of the part of the world that has produced the art I know from there. Like you know, it's so it's so mis- mystical how yeah. how one can connect with these things. But it tasted like the land. Not that I've ever lived there long enough. I've been to that part of the world, but I've never spent enough time there that I could say, oh, it tastes like, you know, when I got down on my hands and knees and started licking the ground in Turkey. No, I, <laughs> how would I know? Yeah. It was just this sense that, well, it's definitely not French or Spanish or Portuguese or anything like that. Yeah. It definitely feels like, you know, some of those aromas that are coming out are more things that you get in Middle Eastern cuisine. And since Turkish is the the father of Middle Eastern cuisine, you know, yeah. I sort of went there. So that kind of rose pomegranate, a little bit of cardamom kind of, you know. And that's how it started. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you guessed it. And that was uh, very, very... Unusual also. <laughs> well, I think one of the things that started the topic of the conversation I think you and I are going to leap into here is that the lovely thing about that Turkish wine is that it wasn't so outrageously alcoholic like so many wines from the New World are, you know, where you've got 15.8% alcohol. You know, it was more, it reminded me more of the wines I knew when I was living in France that are 12%, right? And one of the reasons is that the French have laws that we don't have. They're much more strict about what you can do to wine. So, you know, if you'd like to go there about wine loudness and musical loudness, <laughs> I'm, I'm your man. Well, let's start. Okay, all right. So I, what, what I'd love to talk about are the loudness wars in music and uh, the wine loudness wars. Nobody calls it that. I call it that. Um, because I think societally they're starting from the same place. So what's the point? First of all, what are the loudness wars? Um, the loudness wars, it's not like they started recently, though people talk about it as, it as if it started recently. It actually started pretty much with the introduction of vinyl in the 1940s. But it's about um, if your music is being produced and put on the radio or put on compact disc or put on vinyl and put out there, you tend to respond to it more favorably if it's louder to your ears than another cut that's softer. It's just how we are wired as human beings, right? So, um, and it doesn't take much, just a few decibels. And you can say, oh, this sounds better than that. But what you don't realize is this just because it's a little bit louder. So sure, you can turn up the volume and you can take the loudest moment in a recording and set that as your zero mark and everything from below that is lower and you have dynamic range so in a what lorenzo what is the music what is the format of music that has the largest dynamic range in the history of music it's classical music right i mean you know a Mahler symphony is going to go from whisper quiet one muted viola behind the stage to nine trombones and three bass drums and a full choir, right? I mean... Yeah, I'm talking about the eighth. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it doesn't get more dynamic range than that. So our ears are beautifully suited to capture the nuances of those sounds from the quietest to the loudest. But 
these formats like vinyl and tape and compact discs, they don't have as wide a range to capture all of those decibels. So in order to make the music not distort when it gets loud, but also still be listenable when it's quiet, you have to work within the limitations of the format and dynamically compress that sound. At first, it wasn't a big deal with vinyl, and there were reasons why they had to, having to do with the needle jumping out of the groove and stuff like that. But then, you know, they discovered that if you, if you push sounds a little too loud on the recording on reel-to-reel tape, uh, you get kind of a lovely sound, which is called tape compression, which is actually euphonious. It sounds good. It doesn't sound distorted. It just sounds kind of, it kind of fattens up richly. The mid-range becomes a little more bloomed, and there's a kind of warmth. And it comes from harmonic distortion, which, you know, that's something you can look up on your own. Open a dictionary. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what started to happen with the introduction of the compact disc, when sound quality started to take its biggest nosedive, right? I mean, you'll, I'm perfectly content saying that uh, Sound was at its best in 1979, and it's been downhill since then. The introduction of the compact disc was the introduction of compromised audio. And we'll slowly catch back up there, but what happened with compact disc is that you had a set limit for what the loudest sound was, digital zero. So people thought, okay, well, we know where to set our levels. We can't go above zero because it'll, it'll go, it'll sound terrible, yeah. right? So now what can we do about the fact that there are all these quiet parts here and our song, if we want it to get lit ears on the radio, we want to boost up the, the, the sense of loudness so that you know people hear somebody else's song, but then our song comes on and it just sounds, they, they smile more. And why? Because we're genetically wired to appreciate more when something sounds fuller, bigger, louder, right? I think maybe this is a point where giving you an example would work. So. I'm going to play for you. This is the kind of this is the kind of test that you can do all the time for somebody. Here's here is the digital remaster of uh, Babylon Sisters by Steely Dan. All right, nice and clear, right? Here is my my record, my vinyl, which I played 600 times before I recorded this. This is the sound of vinyl. It's closer, no? Yeah, which one do you like more? I, I mean, I, I do like vinyl a lot. Yeah, but can you tell me why? It doesn't sound as artifact as... Uh -huh. as, as, as um, it actually has many more artifacts. It does, yeah, actually. But I wasn't expecting it to be... A vinyl, actually, the second record. Yeah, so let's do this again. Digital. And analog. Now, to my ears, there's just more there. There's more space around. There's more space, yeah. and there's just more there. Yeah. Right. You want to know what the real answer is? The analog sample is three decibels louder. Okay. I increase the volume by three decibels. Now, isn't it amazing how you perceive that as being somehow there's more there there yeah. the only there that there was more of was volume was decibels is, is this something that applies only to recordings and to the to the recorded sounds or the recorded voice or also in real life we perceive loudness as 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 value 
Okay, that that's a great As a, question because it's true <laughs> that if you know a commander of an army speaks like this, he's not going to get his soldiers to follow him. Exactly. So, so a stentorian voice, a commanding voice, is going to get more attention. But it depends on what you're after, right? Well, as a performer, I'm 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 wondering sometimes. You mm. know, you play in, you used to play an encore because right now it's not happening uh, <laughs> but that's another subject um, and you play an anchor and it's a very slow anchor and it doesn't just yield the same applause as right. a fast loud fast and loud tends loud. to win yes. applause over yes. quiet and nuanced yes. yeah yes. I mean that's it doesn't only... it doesn't it doesn't make me change my own selection right but um, it I noticed it's very very sure you know that's because you're talking about a majority here, and a majority of people in an audience are going to be more impressed by fast fingers and loudness than they are by nuance and subtlety. Yeah. That's a majority. As far as I'm concerned, that's just a majority question. The number of people in the audience who are going to really lean in to that nuance of your quiet encore is much smaller, yeah. much smaller. So it's just about choosing. I mean, most of the people in the audience won't be musicians, right? So you can't expect them to feel the middle ground of a Schumann Kreisleriana piece as they would, you know, a fast and loud, you know, Rachmaninoff etude or something. This is Dress Rehearsal on KBFG Seattle, and this is your host, Lorenzo Marasso. Today's guest is uh, Classical King FM radio host, uh, Sean McLean. Generally, fast and loud wins the game. We're only talking about the loud part here, though, because the loudness wars in both wine and music are about amplitude. They're not about tempo. Um, because, as it turns out, if your beautiful, quiet piano encore could have its dynamic range squashed, which means that when you put it up to the highest level, it sounds louder and richer, you still would find that people would respond to that recording psychologically better than if it had its full dynamic range. And that has to do with the limitations of equipment of audio playback versus being in a room with somebody, right? So all of this stuff is understandable. The problem is that it just went too far. And it went too far with wine as well. This is an opinion. <laughs> um, but you asked about the wine connection, right? What is the well, loudness war in wine? Yes. So you say it's an opinion. Was the music loudness also an opinion or somebody has talked I, about I it? I think so? enough people agree now yeah. that it's gone too far. It's gotten to the point where if you look at classic recordings, say a recording from the 60s or 70s, and then the, the record labels will reissue that recording in a, quote, remastered form. Do you know what they've done when they've, quote, remastered it? They, they've just crushed the dynamic range. So if it used to go from let's say, an audible 33 decibels to 104 decibels. It now goes from 60 decibels to 102 decibels. All they've done is bring up the, the quiet parts and squash them into the louder parts so that there's no space left in the music anymore, and you just have this constant wall of sound. And sure enough, psychoacoustically, you as the listener perceives that as being louder. The actual loudest parts of the song have not changed. They're still just as loud as they were before, but now the quiet parts have been pushed up into the into the. So instead of getting da, let's say da dum da dum, you get da dum da dum da. You never get a break. Yeah. You never get a chance to breathe anymore. Yeah. I'm not the only person who finds this intolerable, and it's happening around the world. Restaurants, for example, when is the last time you found a restaurant where you could hear yourself speak? 
I don't remember last time I went to a restaurant. Well, was right. Was yeah. Like in 1984. <laughs> yeah, <it was>. yeah. <laughs> right. So 2019, right? I mean, you know, back then it was already becoming impossible to find a place where you don't have to yell across to your dinner yes. partner. Right? Yes. Why? 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 It, it is, I have to say, uh, I never experienced that in an Italian restaurant in, in Italy. Mm-hmm. Why is that? Is it the, the acoustics? There are two it? reasons that in Italy where that fantastic cuisine is served, the tradition is strong enough that the restaurants acoustically are set up with lots of soft surfaces, so drapes, uh, tablecloths, napkins, floors that have lovely rugs on them, um, ceilings that are not hard concrete, right? Whereas, as an architect, I know you can relate to this, there's been this kind of brutalist revival here in the United States where there's a lot of interior surfaces. It mainly has to do with the fact that the upkeep is much easier on hard surfaces. You can spray them down and wipe them off. You don't have to send off the tablecloths and the napkins to the launderers. You don't have to budget for that. So if everything is a hard surface, it's much faster to clean it, and you make more money in your restaurant. Right? It's not going out to your laundry bill. Yeah. But the problem is that now you have more reflective surfaces, which increases the loudness because your yeah. sound is bouncing around everywhere. Yeah. Poor people with hearing aids, they can't even hear themselves talk, right? So so this has become a trend that's somewhat related to money, a lot related to just a, a you know, we're in, we're in the midst of a, of, a, of a fashion here with, you know, brutalist industrial surfaces, right? Yeah, um, yeah. Eventually, it'll come back around to soft surfaces again, which will help greatly in being able to hear your dinner partner. No question yeah. about that. A little musical interlude with uh, the beautiful song by Schubert called the Trinklied. And the text says, You, my friends, and you, golden wine, make my life sweet. Without you, I would truly be always in a state of anxiety and agitation. Without friends, without wine, I don't want to live. This is Dress Rehearsal on KBFG Seattle, and this is your host, Lorenzo Marasso. Today's guest is uh, Classical King FM radio host uh, Sean McLean. Wine, loudness, what is he talking about, right? Okay, so... No, I'm very curious. So the way wine was always made traditionally is that the grapes grow in a vineyard and yeast forms on them. Then you take that wine, 
you crush it, and the yeast that was on the skin of the wine suddenly finds all this sugar released by the grape. And so that local yeast that only grows in that little vineyard, in that little part of Alto Adige, or that little part of you know Bourgogne, or wherever. Or Turkey. Or Turkey, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, that local yeast, which has which produces its own specific flavor profile, will enter that available sugar and turn it into alcohol. And then when there isn't enough sugar left in the grape for the yeast to work on, there's no more alcohol. You can no longer create that level of fermentation. And that was that. You had the wine from the region, and if you had a bad summer, it was going to be a little low on alcohol, right? Or maybe a little high on acidity or whatever. But everyone just understood you're drinking a little snapshot of time. Well, of course, over the years, people are like, mm, yeah, that's a disadvantage, the bad summer, the rainy summer, so I'm going to do something about it. And a guy named Chaptal came up with this process of adding sugar, external sugar, to the grape must, to the, to the juice, the pressed juice. And what that did was give the yeast more to ferment, so the yeah. alcohol content was raised Rains. to be more in balance with the acidity, right? Yeah. Well, the French being the French, they I did... I thought only sc sc scammy vin the winemakers would, would do that. Well, see, <laughs> very, uh... something has to be tried by somebody, and then the public rebels, especially an educated public like the French, the biggest wine drinkers in the history of the world, right? So they didn't like this idea. Yeah. So they rebelled in, in 1907 and said, mm -mm, no, no, this gives an unfair advantage. This doesn't allow us to taste the masterworks of the these old vines that are growing in some very special hills that are maintained by artisan winemakers, if I can just add sugar and get a balance that's similar to what Auguste, who's been working on this vineyard for 50 years up the hill gets, it's, it's an unfair advantage. So the French are very, they've always been this way. Yeah. They, don't, they don't like the unfair advantage. You should be rewarded for putting in your generations and generations of winemaking and not have some upstart show up, throw a bunch of sugar in there and and get a better wine, right? Yeah. So they made it illegal. Not totally illegal, there's a limit. You can add sugar up to this level. Well, in the United States, these, these rules don't exist. You can do what you want with your wine and you don't even have to put it on the label. So what started to happen is that wines have become more and more alcoholic, more sugary, more powerful, bigger would be the word, yeah. right? And we saw because of the weather, like the California. That's what they want you to believe. Now, it's true that there's a lot of sunshine in California, and there's a lot of sunshine throughout the summer in Washington State. But, and yes, the soil is very fertile here. All those things are good. But the main reason is that the, the laws just don't exist saying you can't do this and you can't do that. It's like do what's at your disposal to make this wine as big, fruity, powerful, etc. Yeah. And once again, it's a kind of loudness war yeah. because we now have wines that are getting up above 15% alcohol. They make you hammered when you drink them. Yeah. I mean, you can't have a conversation afterwards, right? <laughs> um, you can't drive home. <laughs> <laughs> and sure, they may be powerful enough to be a good marriage for your roast pork rib or whatever, right? But it's not the kind of wine you'd want to be drinking every time you get together. And yet it's more and more becoming the case. And so I love that recently there's been a rebellion against this. And we're starting to see some dry farm wineries who don't, you know, they, they don't use more irrigation than the weather provides. They don't add sugar. Uh, it brings the alcohol level down. And it tends, what tends to happen when you turn down the sugar 
and you turn down the additives and the sulfites and all that is, guess what? You start to taste the actual wine. The actual wine. <laughs> the, the nature of the grape, of the yeah. varietal itself, right? You actually can start tasting the terroir, the quality of the land that it comes from. And you're back to wines being something that's truly artisanal instead of a factory competition for who can produce the biggest, boldest, loudest wine. It's interesting what you're saying because the the actual raise in, in alcoholic content, it's something that happened in Italy. I remember when I was, uh, I wasn't a drinker when I was a kid, but I remember my parents mm. and my mom, for example, say, um, I like this wine because it's not very alcoholic and, mm. and you could actually drink more of it and be fine, right. you know, not get, you know, headaches and hangover. Mm. And then progressively, as people, I guess, the winemakers started to come to America or because, you know, be, because they were being influenced by... And also they were being outbid because yeah. people were buying more Californian than Italian wines, yeah. which is bad for their business. So it, that's what I mean by a war. It's, it, it's just like in the music industry. Yeah. Well, my song didn't get as much airplay. What if I increase the loudness by compressing it dynamically? Oh, now it's getting more airplay because more people respond to louder, right? Yeah. But at a certain point, you get to saturation. And then what do you do? And I think we're at a point now in both music and in wine where enough people have had it up to here. You yeah. know, they don't want to add half a glass of water to every one of their glasses of wine because yeah. it's just too strong and too big and et cetera. Also, the wine have become uh, like... Very level. Yes. Yeah, like, they, they sort of all taste the same yes, now. Yes, right? yes, yes. So the, the whole notion of terroir is pretty much gone yeah. in these big California... And, right, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you should be able to taste. I mean, that's why that Turkish wine that you served was so lovely because like, oh, I have a sense of place with this wine. Yeah, yeah. And you can only get that with a wine where the focus from the winemaker has been on getting out of the way, yeah. letting the grape do its thing in that soil, in that area. Just as a producer of a recording, the guy who's responsible for the eventual recorded sound... Instead of saying, all right, we're going to jam a microphone down the throat of every instrument in this ensemble here, and I'm going to decide how loud I want it. No, they're a string quartet. They know the balance. Yes. Just put a pair of microphones in front of them. The violist is going to decide how, lo how loud she wants to be relative to the cellist, et cetera. They work together. They're making those decisions, not you, the producer, right? So it's sort of, and, and, and when it's finished, well, if they played so quietly you could barely hear it, leave it in there. Yeah. Make your listener lean into the recording. This is another sort of visual I carry with me. The difference between listening in the early 70s and listening today is listening in the early 70s was about leaning forward in your chair. Listening today is about being pushed back into your yeah. backrest, you yeah. know, because everything is just so loud. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if the... Um the actual war that uh, the Romanian conductors uh, Sergiu Celibidache yeah. had against recordings, yeah. he, he actually was very against it, and he yeah. didn't leave. I mean, all, all there is, is is actually live recordings of, right. his, of his concerts. If almost it's, bootlegs of his. Yeah, almost yeah. bootlegs, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. And uh, I wonder if it's uh, something related to the same discussion. Yeah, Celibidache wasn't the only conductor who complained about what recordings do. Um, Which costed him the Berliner Philharmonic job. Exactly. <laughs> but, but I mean, funny you mentioned Berlin because Karian himself, who was an absolute techno geek, I mean, he studied all that stuff. He wanted to understand microphones, but he was constantly complaining about the dynamic range, you know, about saying, I don't want to ask the, the basses at the beginning of the pathétique to have to play one dynamic range louder than Tchaikovsky asked for because 
it's more exciting when you have to lean all the way in and listen to it. But the problem is, in his day of vinyl, the signal-to-noise ratio, that is to say the amount of noise that the needle in the groove makes, was louder than the sound of the basses at the beginning. <laughs> so he had, he had to, yeah. and he understood this, right? Yeah. So yes, recordings have always been uh, less uh, immersive experience and a less true experience than being in the concert hall. I don't have a problem with that. I just have a problem with once you get to compression, where do you draw the line and stop compressing, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. I work in classical music radio station. I actually believe in dynamic compression because most of our listeners are listening in environments that aren't quiet studios. So if you're listening in the kitchen and you've got your water running, or you're listening in your car, which a lot of people, the sound of the road underneath that sound, yeah. it's covering a lot of, especially the register where my favorite instruments live, French horns and celli and instruments like <laughs> that, right? So if you don't dynamically compress that recording, your driver is going to have to reach for the volume knob to turn it up when it's quiet and then reach for it again when it gets loud and he's gonna have to do that 40 times in a Mahler symphony. That's, yeah. it's irritating, yeah. right? So I'm not against compression. I'm against over compression and I'm against over loudness and I'm against over extraction of wines and over shaptalization and over everything, right? Overcorrecting wrong notes uh, in recordings. Yeah, yeah it's exciting when you hear right? a wrong yeah. note. It's exciting yeah. because you realize, oh, that's a human being, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's not, it's not a robot. Exactly. I mean, exactly. only a few people could ever play all the way through without making a mistake. Um, I mean, there are, yeah, there are these kind of pianists, uh, yeah. musicians who actually yeah. play. Well, we think of pianists because we're both pianists. Yes. But yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, th I think of Andrei Gavrilov. He never missed a note. It's crazy. This guy is a monster. Yeah. I mean, he's just... Yeah. But I mean, even, I mean, I heard that the entire World Temporary Clavier played by Andrashev, and there was probably one or two wrong notes in wow. the entire thing. But Andrash is a good guy. He's a good human being. He cares deeply about the music, but I don't think he has any pretensions. You know, he's, he's not so much the legend in his own mind that some other pianists come to mind. Like, like who, for example? Oof. I don't know, man. I don't think I want to go there. <laughs> Yeah, there are some legends in their own minds out there. But, you I mean, know, our heroes, I think you and I share some heroes. They're all humble people, you know. Yeah. Murray Pariah, I mean, that guy is, yeah. he's not a legend in his own mind, and, but he's a god. And why is he a god? Because he gets out of the way of the music. Yeah. He lets the music come through, not him, you know. I mean, I, I think there are, there are a range of players that actually never miss a note and a range of players that right. will miss a note, like... Courtauld. Courtauld was great. Always miss, oh, miss but notes. I, but and, it was so and expressive. too. yeah. And um, yeah, but you know, expression, expression, expression. Yeah. They're willing to take that yeah. chance. And it's, you know, this all comes back to wine as well for me because a winemaker should be willing to say, okay, all right, didn't have a great summer, but you're going to taste what the summer of 2006 yeah. Yeah. yielded. And next year you'll get something better. Yeah. And what I love about that is that it's automatically a kind of education yeah. for the wine drinker. Yeah. I don't know about you, but I'm interested in learning more. Yes. I want to drink a wine and say, okay, I now know what the taste of the Viognier grape does mm -hmm. in several different years, yes. in, un, in several different hands, different winemakers. I want to really get to know this grape and to hear how it can express here. That's interesting. To taste how it can yeah, express yeah, yeah. itself. No, because the other, the other downside of all this, of all this, this technological enhancement of the wine too. Correct. It's uh, is the fact that you don't recognize if it's a, a 2008 right. or a right. 2012. Right. They all seem very leveled too, yeah. and uh, that's why I like to do horizontal tasting. Yeah, <laughs> Sean, what's the horizontal tasting thing? <laughs> uh, I 
I'd like to think I invented this. I don't know if I did, but the idea is a vertical tasting, you take one wine, you know, you take your, I don't know, take a Chateau Neuf du Pape and have it a bottle from 1978 and a bottle from 1984 and a bottle from 1985, etc. To me, those verticals are interesting only to people who want to sell uh, wine because you don't actually learn that much. You only learn something that you can't really share with other people, right? What you learn is, oh, I now I can say what a Chateau Neuf du Pape from 84 tastes like versus an, so what? Like, how is that making the world a better place? What could potentially make the world a better place is to have more people understand what grapes do uh, and how important the land is, how important the winemaker is, and then pair it with music while you're at it. So that's what a horizontal tasting is. What that means is instead of dealing with vintages, you find one grape, just pick a grape. Let's say something famous like Cabernet Mal Sauvignon or Malbec, Malbec or whatever, right? Okay, <laughs> take Malbec. So what can this grape that is not so used in France as a single varietal grape, but rather used as a blender grape, what can it do when it's just itself in Washington State or Australia or South Africa, right? So you take this one grape and you express it in more and more interesting bottles. Now, this is subjective because you need to round up five wines. I think five is a good number. And you say, okay, this one is a good solid expression, a good start of what the Malbec grape tastes like in, let's say, South Africa, right? But you, 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 know, you get a little taste beforehand so you know what the master bottle is. Ooh, the best one turns out to come from, let's say, Oregon. Who knows, right? You have yeah. to taste them. And then you get some people together and you line up the five bottles in order of kind of magnificence, right? You, fin you finish with the great one. And then you also take a short piece of music, ideally something three minutes or less. And you, quote, express it in better and better, quote, interpretations. You're doing to the music what you are to the grape. You're expressing it in richer and richer interpretations or more nuanced or more magnificent interpretations. Right? So take, I don't know, you name it, a little Bach prelude or something. Have some solid pianist play it at first with that first wine. Give them a chance to rinse, spit if needed. Some people like doing that. You know, two-ounce pour is enough. You don't want people to be completely yeah. drunk by the end of the evening. By the time you get to the fifth bottle, for one thing, most people will have had four two-ounce pours at that point. That's starting to get happy, right? They're starting to be nicely lubricated. And then you deliver that fifth bottle and you deliver the master musical performance. Well, you've accomplished two things. One is now you've got a room of people who know that piece of music intimately because they've heard it five times. But they've heard it five times by different performers. And you have a room full of people who now know what the Malbec grape tastes like in different soils in different parts of the world and what it can do in the right hands. To me, that's something that's actually useful. This is Dress Rehearsal on KBFG Seattle, and this is your host, Lorenzo Marasso. Today's guest is uh, Classical King FM radio host, uh, Sean McLean. If you go home and you have to put on a little piece of music, a three-minute piece or two-minute piece of music, what would it be? Before, would it, going, before going to bed. And ah, maybe before going a, to bed, okay. Before with a glass of scotch or ah. cognac. Or. Okay, I think maybe a glass of, maybe just two fingers of really good Kentucky straight bourbon. Um, well, you know what's coming to, you said bed. There's a piece that jumps to my mind right now on this day. If you ask me tomorrow, it might change. But what's coming to my mind right now is a beautiful little piano piece by Poulenc. And I would 
probably have it with a glass of Viognier. Um, Viognier is an interesting wine because it, 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 uh, in France it's a very, it's really almost an aperitif. It doesn't marry with food very well. In the little part of France where it's grown, in Condrieux, which is about 11 hectares for the whole country, it's a tiny little plot of land. And that wine that they make with the Viognier grape is, it's a very feminine uh, wine. It, it almost, it sort of smells like apricot flowers and it's quite, it's quite perfumed and it's not a very strong wine. But in Washington state, Viognier is doing these massive wines, yes. right? You know, and with a lot more sort of bold notes to it. So I would, I would try to find a Viognier that was somewhere between those two. Um, the French version for me is just a little bit too lacking in chutzpah and the Washington state version is just too acidic and too big. So I'd try to find something in the middle there, maybe from Oregon or maybe from uh, South Australia, um, or Chile is making some good ones. And I would listen to this piece, which is something that Francis Poulenc wrote because his nieces were running around the house, not happy with what he was playing on the piano. He was writing something. And... Um, you know, with all the certainty of being a young person, she just took the score off of Poulenc's piano right in front of her uncle's eyes and said, oh, it's so ugly. Play this. And she put down in front of Poulenc's eyes the book of Baba et Celeste, the elephant, right? The, 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 the famous uh, Jean de Bruneau uh, book. And Poulenc just improvised looking at this picture book, right? As if it was a musical score. He, he indulged his niece that way. And soon all these kids started to show up from the neighborhood, and they just loved what he was doing. And he thought, okay, all right, this should become something. Wasn't that lovely? You just listened to Babar et Celeste by Francis Poulenc from L'Histoire de Babar, uh, which is one of the going-before-bed picks 
with a glass of Viognier by our guest today, uh, classical radio host from uh, Classical King FM 98.1 here in Seattle. And I hope you enjoyed uh, meeting our guest, uh, Sean McLean, and enjoyed getting to know him and talk about a wide variety of topics from uh, um, music, uh, composing, uh, choosing, commenting tracks and presenting tracks for the audience, for the Seattle audience, and um, uh, wine, loudness. It's a lot of topics that we talked about, but it, I had a blast and it was very enjoyable, and I hope we can do this again. And I'm your host, Lorenzo Marasso on KBFG Seattle, and I look forward to seeing you next week for another episode of Dress Rehearsal. Benissimo. Okay. <laughs> uh, one thing to know when you're doing an interview in a radio station is that if you get expressive with your hands and you hit the desk, yes. it becomes an atom bomb in the audio yeah. file. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So just be careful with, with hands yes. on here. Not yes. to say you can't rest them there, but don't, don't yeah, make don't a point it, by yeah, doing yeah. it because it doesn't sound... It doesn't sound like it looks. Yeah, yeah. When I see it, it looks great. It's an emphasis, but in the audio file, it's just this big boom. Yeah. 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 So. Okay.